morning. If the sermon goes long, you can blame the elders because I gave them the option of taking a little bit longer to go through this. And with a sense and a voice of unanimity, they said, no, two sermons, Darren. And then we want to get back into Mark. And I kind of agree. I want to get back into Mark with you guys as well. We took some time to do the membership course. We took some time for Easter. We're going to take a little bit of time in Ephesians and we'll be back in Mark in two weeks from right now. Before we get there, though, I do want to say one thing about the membership process. If you were with us through all this and you've been thinking about joining, we were going to have kind of a big, colossal new members picnic next Sunday. And oh, how great it is that the weather's like this until Brian gave us bad news. And it is likely that next week we will not be having such a picnic sort of worthy amount of weather after church. Also, some of the people that are usually the backbone for us throwing picnics are going to be away next week. So we're going to be revising our plans just a little. I want to let you know that, all right? Momentum, you're still going to meet after church next week. We're going to have your kind of end of the year bash. But if you've been thinking about joining the church, rather than us having this one Sunday where it's sort of a, hey, you're in or you're out or whatever, we're going to give folks a chance throughout the summer to kind of take their time and declare their intentions. So there's a bunch of folks that have been around that have said, hey, we've, we've really liked what's, uh, what we heard through the membership course and through what you guys are doing, um, but we just need a little bit more time. So we're just going to take some time over the summer. We may have a few crew folk who, before they head out, want to kind of declare their intent. And we'll be able to celebrate that tomorrow or uh, next Sunday. But it might just be that we'll sort of, you know, make this a rolling process of folks declaring their intention to join. And we'll probably have a little bit more of a big celebration of all of that than in the fall, especially whenever our crew folks have come back. So hope that makes sense. And the, so the reason for why we're making that change also makes sense. But I wanted to let you know how we were going to wrap up that with our, with our membership. That said, if you're anywhere in that process, please get in touch with me and we'll talk. So, all right, here we are. To Ephesians. I'm going to sum up chapters 1, 2, and 3 in two sentences, and here they are. God's glory and grace, magnified in our salvation, point us to the all-encompassing plan of God to reconcile all things to himself in Jesus. This mysterious plan, hidden in ages past, is revealed to the world in his visible church, so that we as his bride, body, and temple can show them that nobody in the world fulfills their plans like God. Now, those were two sentences. You have heard shorter sentences without a doubt, but they're kind of uh, every word chosen with intent. The reason for that is because chapters 1, 2, and 3 are Paul trying to make a point, and then, now I'm not sure if you guys have ever thought of this before, but it is nice with the windows open in here, isn't it? It really is. And we've got a fan, and we've got some other things. I'm sorry, okay, so back to the point. Um, Paul is trying to get to something that he's trying to say, and in the process of trying to say, you know, there is one other point, though, that I would like to kind of mention is that I put a fan in there and Bill doesn't turn it on. And I just want to let you know why. So Bill, can you turn the fan on for a second? Just, just flip the fan there. See, Bill doesn't even know how they work the switch that runs the fan. See, 
Yeah, see, there it is. You see, hear the little hum? That's not so bad. It's kind of, you know, we're going to have to figure these things out, though, as the windows are open. I'm sorry, am I getting distracted? I think I am. Here's the reason I am getting distracted. That's what Paul does in chapters 1, 2, and 3. It's really weird. Paul starts in chapter 1, and he says something, and he goes, oh, 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 that totally reminds me of this. And then he goes off on a tangent for a while, says, okay, now I want to come back to pray for you again, and then starts to pray, and then says, oh, (laughs) that reminds me of something else. It's really tough to follow Paul as he's making his way through chapters 1, 2, and 3. And if you've noticed that as you guys were studying it, it, it was a tricky thing. The other thing about, about Paul is that he loves prepositional phrases. Now, you've probably saw that just in hearing what, uh, what Steph read for us. Um, but to try and get through these three chapters quickly, I'm going to try and make five points. All right? We'll see kind of how we do. And right now, it is 1045 by that clock. I'd like to see if I could be done somewhere around 1115 So here's what's going to happen. Josiah, every five minutes, you're going to try and get my attention and see if I can move on from one point to the next one. (laughs) All right? So if this sermon goes long, one, blame the elders. This was their idea in the first place. And two, blame Josiah because he didn't do a good job of reminding me to move on. All right? So am I absolved? Yes. Thank you. I really appreciate that. That was helpful. Here's the first point I'd like to make from Ephesians chapter 1. It's this, God's devotion to save us only magnifies his worth. God's devotion to save us only magnifies his worth. And the reason I say it that way is because it it feels counterintuitive. You remember the the scene in Toy Story where Andy's going to go away to college. His mother comes into the room and says, you have to do something with everything in this room and you have one of three options, college, attic, or trash. College, attic, or trash. And the toys are wondering what's going to happen to them. Are we valuable to Andy? And as the story goes on, in the beginning, they don't think they're valuable because they get thrown away in the trash. Well, what do the, what do the toys say? It's, it, they kind of see that moment as like, wow, we're not valuable, But then they turn to Andy and start making judgments about Andy. Now, spoiler, he wasn't trying to throw them away. He was trying to put them in the attic. But salvation kind of is interesting the way we think about it sometimes that way as well. Particularly in the United States. We've done a good job of putting forward the idea that if God wants to save you, you must be valuable. So in other words, God's plan to save you magnifies whose worth? Yours. And that has a particular American ring to it. We really like thinking about how important we are. But at the end of the day, just like the toys went from making judgments about themselves to judgments about Andy, we realize that the Bible actually gets it right. God's plan to save us actually talks about him more than about us. Now, it makes derivative statements about us. But the primary point, the first point we want to make, is that when we see verse 3 begin, it begins by saying, blessed be the 
God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who gets credit for all the saving work that he does. It's why what Steph read ended with this phrase, to the praise of his glorious grace with which we, he has blessed us in the beloved. He goes on and he says the same thing about Jesus then in verses 7 through 10. It's in him that we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Just take verse 7 to back up my point. Look at the pronouns. What did you contribute to the work of salvation? What was yours? The trespasses. What gets magnified? His grace, his blood, his solution to our problem. Now, Paul doesn't seem to have any problem with this because he just keeps talking along that line. He says in verse 10, this is all a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In other words, when you got saved, guess what? That was a miraculous moment for you. And it was a microcosm of what God was going to be doing through the entire planet. That's why when we go to verse 11, we read, In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Why? There's the phrase again. To the praise of his glory. When we go all the way down to the very end of verse 14, we hear it again. The promised Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So that's the first point. The first thing we need to get from this book is that God's whole plan that's going to be expounded in this of saving us, it's all done to magnify his worth. Point one, five minutes. Point two, verse 15. For this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you, and here's what I want you to hear. And I want you to think of this moment. We're going to interrupt Paul for a second. Let me ask you. When somebody asks you to pray for them, how do you pray? What do you pray for? We probably pray for a solution to the problem that asked them to ask for prayer in the first place, right? I need you to go and pray, plead, ask God for something on my behalf. And Paul certainly would know everything of what's going on in the Ephesian church. He'd probably get news of some of the friends that he had while he was there and the, the problems and the, the real material things that are going on. But look what he prays for. He prays that he would give them wisdom and of revelation in knowledge of him. Wow, what if, we, what if we prayed that way? Verse 18, he wants them to have the eyes of their hearts enlightened so that they could have hope, a hope that he's called them to that is in keeping, not with the poverty of their lives right now, but in keeping with the riches of the glorious inheritance that they have in the saints. It is so great and so glorious. It is powerful. It is greatly powerful. It is immeasurably greatly powerful. Those are the words that he's using. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? 
according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he, just in case you couldn't think that he could possibly do this, just remember what we just celebrated. Jesus was dead, physically, actually, realistically dead. And resurrection is such a mind-blowing concept like we saw on Easter that Paul regularly brings it back as the reference point when you think God can't do something powerful in your life. You don't think God is capable? You want to take your place with all the Israelites in the past? Oh, we want to go back to Egypt because we see how big this is. Look at them. They look like giants and we look like grasshoppers. We can't possibly. What are you saying? God's a wuss. That's the point you're trying to make. Paul's trying to make the opposite point. God's not actually a wuss. He's immeasurably, greatly powerful. And you have capacity to tie into that. And let me remind you what he's already Already done in case you think he can't handle what you've done. He actually raised Jesus from the dead. And more than that, he seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is being named. And Paul, I thought you were praying for us. I thought when you were going to pray, you were going to pray about how God was going to do something for me. I thought I was the point of the prayer. And Paul, kind of in this interrupting you know, sort of sense, says like, yeah, but that's what got me started. But then I just had so much more I could pray for you. I had so much more I wanted for you. You, you, you thought you needed two grand? Like, yes, you, you need two grand, okay. But what if he did this and that? What if he did all this so that you were reminded that Jesus is seated at the right hand in heavenly places above every ruler, every authority, every power, anyone who claims dominion, and above every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He put all that stuff under Jesus' feet, and he gave him his head over all things, and he gave him to us. That's Ephesians 1. He gets credit for saving, and he's not done. Every time we have a request, here's the second point. God's plans are way bigger, and that's all we need to know. That's it. Because you can't measure with any ruler you've got the metric of God's plans and purposes for you out into the future because your body is going to be the fullness of him who fills all in all. We, this little rinky-dink church, are one little outpost that says in the way we live and breathe and thrive and function, this is what the whole kingdom's like. And we trust them to do way more than what we see right here. But we still get a glimpse. So he gets the credit. And he's always doing more. Points one and two. How am I doing on time, Josiah? Yes! Okay! Point three is this. And this is the one that's going to kick you in the shins. Because you love to be right when other people think you're wrong. And you love to be right when you know other people are wrong. And that's not just the way we think about academics, though we like to think about academics that way. You ever notice that? You never really just learn what you learn. You learn why all the other people who aren't learning what you're learning are wrong. 
That's an important way to make sure you learn is to learn all the long, wrong learners out there. But it's not just an academic thing, is it? It's the way marriage works. It's the way college roommates hang out. We figure out ways to rank each other based on rightness and wrongness. There's a, one of those, you know, motivational posters. There's a group called Demotivators that would take similarly beautiful photos and then put little taglines underneath them. One's a majestic scene in Alaska or something like that. It's just all this frozen tundra. And it's got two little polar bears out there, and they're just fighting each other in the middle of it. And it says, as long as we have each other, we'll never run out of problems. <laughs> I think it's a good sign. Maybe we'll put it in the lobby for a little bit, just to remind us of how ridiculous it is when we have our spats and our conflicts and our ways of ranking each other. And it's why you have trouble when you come to church, because you're like, I don't know how other people think about me, and I'm not sure where I stand, and I'm not sure, because I'm just worried, because we all have the caste system. It's just we don't all have the same caste system, so we're really worried about everybody else's caste system and where I fit in them, because that's just what humans do. And God obliterates all of it through the gospel, Ephesians chapter 2. Third point is this, the peace God offers to his enemies destroys conflict, period. And it argues from the greater to the less. If the conflict we had with God has been reconciled through the redemptive and reconciliatory work of Christ, then what in the world is your problem with him or her? It's Jesus' parable about forgiveness, right? The guy owes an unpayable debt and it's forgiven and he goes and strangles the guy who's got debt that he could actually get. You don't get the gospel if that's the way you function. And Ephesians 2 works the same way. Because the reality is you were dead. And the reality is that the sins and trespasses of your world didn't just show that you were dead, you were zombie-like dead. You had a weird decaying appetite and you followed after another force, the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air. You were dead like the walking dead. You weren't dead, just dead. You were dead with a weird, twisted appetite. And so you've got passions of a flesh and you're carrying desires of a body and the mind, children of wrath. The rest of mankind's exactly like this. This is the way we were. But God was rich in mercy. God had great love, and he used that great love to love us. God, when we were dead in our trespasses, he completely eliminated everything about that old condition, and he made us alive now in Christ, and he raised us up. This all happened by grace. Why? So that our appetites are totally different. I don't think about the next corpse I can go feed on in human conflict. I don't figure out how I can rank over you and step on you to get, you know, sort of get a little bit more elevation in life. I have the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ. That's what's coming. That's the coming ages. That's the coming attractions for the people of God. Not how you win over somebody else. Not how you rank. It's that you get to be included in this universal plan. And that happened not because you were so great. It happened because of grace. Verse 8. 
you were saved through grace and through faith. And this, this grace, this faith, yeah, probably both are not of your own doing. They're gifts of God, not of works. So stop bragging because you're not the main worker. God's the main worker. He's the main one creating us for these good works that we get to walk in that he's done the work of beforehand. So here's the magic is verse 11 in this single word, therefore. Because going forward from verse 11, you're either going to call God a liar from verses 1 through 10 in chapter 2. No, that's not true. No, that's not important. No, that doesn't need to matter. No, that preaches well, but it doesn't live with any power, Darren. Or therefore, I'm going to take six on this one. Thank you, Jace. Or therefore, because all of that is true, then these things are laid out for us also. You were separated, but now you've been brought near. Zombies don't belong in heaven, but you and your new state, you do. You've been brought near to God. And Jesus is now our peace, having created one new man. And so you're not foreigners and aliens before God, but in him, you're being built into a temple. And that's amazing for all of us, but you need to understand who he's preaching to. He was preaching to the Gentiles. All of those statements were made about the lowest class in the church. Those who had no future or no past history with God, but all those who should have been enemies of God, all those who persecuted the people of God, all those who were occupying the land of God, those kind of Gentiles, that's true of them. You see, the Jews could be hearing all this stuff and going, yeah, duh, I knew that. I knew I was special. I knew that because I was born in this family, God loved me more than them. And Paul's like, yeah, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about the people you've already dismissed. They were brought near. They're part of this one family. They're part of the temple. So quit acting like they don't matter just because they're not as important as you are by your metric. Because if you have peace with God, then God offers, or God, the peace that God offers to his enemies destroys conflict. And we make our way to chapter three. In chapter three, we see this point that God's church once hidden, now reveals his generosity. More than five minutes is what it would take to under, under sort of unpack all the underpinnings of this text. There are some who look in the people of God and accent what the Bible seems to say, that God has got one people throughout all time. There are some that look at the way that God has worked with his people throughout all time and want to highlight the distinctions between Israel in the past and the church in the future. That's the summary you're going to get of the theological points that are underneath this and some of the conflict. Sadly, some of the great conflict at institutions I've studied in that come right after chapter 2 that said, hey, we have peace with each other because we have peace with God. It is mind-blowing that in our defense of truth, we can sometimes be so dismissive of other people as we're trying to think through Scripture. And that's my one-minute commentary on that one-minute theological point. Let's talk for three minutes then about what this actually says. It says that what God's doing here, let's just take this because this is what we know. This is something nobody could have ever seen 
forever. And we're not talking about the peasants. We're talking about the prophets of ages gone by. The prophets didn't see what they were prophesying about. They couldn't understand that this, what Paul calls in verse 2, a stewardship to be able to talk about it. What he calls a mystery in verse 3. What he then says was not in verse 5, made known to the sons of men in other generations as it's been revealed now to his holy apostles and his prophets by the Spirit. This, he uses the word again, mystery is this. The Gentiles belong here. That's a big deal to Paul. And not just a big deal to Paul. It was a big deal to Paul that cost him beating after beating after beating. It's the same big deal that got Stephen stoned. You know that? Because if you tell, listen to Stephen, the first martyr of the church, and the sermon he writes, the sermon he proclaims that's written down for us, He points out all the ways that God was at work in other places than Israel. And it got them so mad that they picked up stones to kill him. And Paul just lived exactly that same life. He'd go and preach in the synagogues. They'd reject him. And so he'd go and take the message to the Gentiles. That move was so anathema to the Jewish community that they would chase him from one city to the other. And in some cases, they'd leave the city they were in, chase him to the next place, and then they'd work hard to chase him from there to another place. Paul, if you read in Acts, is getting beaten up and chased and persecuted because he's been saying this, the Gentiles are fellow heirs. The Gentiles are fellow heirs. They belong, which is good because you're Gentiles, guys. Sorry to exclude the Jews among us. I don't know your nationality, but we, the mutts of the global population today, can be so grateful for the historical importance of this text right here. We got to be included, and which means this. If you got to go meet Isaiah, Micah, if you hung out with Jeremiah and you said, I want you to know what's going to happen in 2022. A group of Gentiles is going to get together and talk about a a Jewish rabbi and the Messiah is going to matter to foreigners like us. He wouldn't have believed you because he couldn't have seen it coming. It was mysterious to those, which is why in verse 9 he says, this mystery was hidden for ages in God who created all things. Why? So that the church, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This is according to God's eternal purpose that he's realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access and confidence through our faith in him. And he ends with this one point. Please, please, please don't lose heart then over what I'm suffering for your sake. This was beating Paul up big time. But Paul said this. What happens? And this is a little bit of a microcosm of the broader point. What happens in this church matters in global ways for eternity. What happens in your family 
What happens with that broken friendship? It matters for global, in global ways for eternity because it is your costly way of living out whether or not God was telling the truth about what he's doing universally. It's one thing to sing songs and say, God's good and he's great at all this stuff. It's another thing to have that song cost you when you have to think about a conflict. It's another thing to make that song cost you when you have to make a sacrifice for someone else who is in need. This isn't just my twisted way of saying that a church attendance matters. But it does. This is why it does. It's not just my twisted way of trying to come around and convince you to reconcile conflicts, but it's actually the motivation behind why I say, if you're in conflict with someone else, it's good to get that reconciled. Because all those costly ways of caring and serving and attending and befriending, all of those say, God, you're doing something bigger than my story and you've been doing it for ages and you're going to wrap it up in the ages to come. And nobody could have seen it, but it's here. So as your pastor, I'm telling you to guard it, treasure it, and protect it. The last point is his final sort of coming back from the interruptions of all this stuff. Me getting interrupted by the windows and the fan, ah, whatever, you know. Paul getting interrupted by these things, you get why he's beginning to pray and he gets interrupted and goes off on a rant. He comes back to pray, gets interrupted, and goes off on a rant. And verse 14 returns to his original prayer and says, it's for this reason, everything I've just been telling you, that I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth is named so that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with this kind of power through your spirit in your inner being so that Christ could dwell in your hearts through faith, so that you, being grounded and grounded in this love, you could have strength to do what? To rise above everyone and show off your power? To be able to be the one exalted person of truth? No, not at all. So that the strength that you'd have through that process would give you the ability to comprehend something that all the saints are trying to comprehend at the same time. The breadth, the length, the height, and the depth of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. What an amazing prayer. If you just had to pray one thing. Lord, would you help them to know that they can't know how much you love them? If that's all they need right now, Lord, whatever you do, he's in pain can't stand or they're just getting ripped apart by this would you just show my brothers and sisters right now let them know that they can't know how much you love them that's the logic of his request at the very end what kind of a God could do that 
What kind of a God could use the little trivial offenses and details of our life to remind us of something the prophets never would have understood, which is that God loves you in ways you can't possibly fathom? What would you say to that God? Paul would say to him who's able to do far more abundantly than than all we ask or think. To him who's able to exceed every one of our prayer requests. To him who's always at work doing something that's far more than what you think you're, you're being cost in the moment. To him, according to that power at work within us, to him be glory in this church, but also in that church. And in Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Because Paul's last point is that God's love is the only basis, strength, and fulfillment that we need in this life. Let's pray. Father, your great love for us is as it's been said in the past, is so accessible that children can wade in it and so deep that elephants can swim in it and that whales can dive in it. Thank you that you won us through the power of your love and thank you that you amaze us for the rest of our days with the depth and the length and the breadth and the height of your great love for us. It would take us millions of years to be able to travel to the next star and your love for us are as great as the heavens are above the earth. Lord, teach us to sing and to dream and to think on our own, in our hearts, and in our relationships and in this church together. And in our mission to the world, Lord, help us to think in such broad ways that how amazing 